0: here with david mcgifford one of the legendary uh, first ad's of uh, hollywood whether he likes to be called that or not that's what i'm calling him and we're here to discuss his book his career and i'm gonna get all sorts of amazing anecdotes and, and talk about the business of being a first ad i think it's something that our our viewership would love to hear about but firstly i want to talk about your book best seat in the house because that's a good jumping off point
1: well Uh, (laughs) it's a bit of a long story, and I'm not sure I want to take up all your time with that, but it started as an urge to have my two young children at the time know why I was gone so much when they were too young to really understand. So I started writing down things that made a difference to me as I looked back over my work, things that helped me grow, things that made me laugh, things that taught me stuff, and I did this off and on for about eight or nine years, and then I happened to mention it to a friend of mine who was still working actively in the business, and he said, oh, I love to read. Send me the pages. I want to see what you wrote for your kids, and then he called me two days later and said, look, you need to make this into a book, and I I was thunderstruck, honestly. I had not thought about that, so then I had to go back and make it grammatically correct and actually think about how things might flow, and it was a, it turned out to be a wonderful experience for me because it, it made me really concentrate on the writing part, which I came to love, as well as the stories, and and that's how it happened. I went through two publishers before I found Bear Manor Media.
0: You have AD'd with, and I have. I've written a list of some of the great people that you've, that directors that you've worked for: uh, Sidney Pollack, Cameron Crowe, Bob Zemeckis, Milish Foreman. I can say it really fast and still take a while. Robert Benton, Tim Burton, Terry Gilliam, Barry Levinson, <laughs> Paul Newman, who people forget don't realize he's a director as well, and uh, Taylor Hackford is on the list. I think that's just a few. There's a few more. Peter Fonda, I think, was the first person you worked with as an ad on um, uh, Idaho Transfer.
1: Well, it was, a, it was a very strange science fiction uh, picture taking place in the future uh, after a huge ecological disaster. And these kids find a way to transport themselves into the future to see what has happened and to try to, uh, And they were able to go back and forth in at, at the beginning of the show. And then at the, at the end of the show, they were not able to get back. They were trapped in the future. And it has a very grisly ending Um, Peter began the show up in um, Idaho. I was the PA in the office, um, taking the dailies to the lab when they sent them in, sending cast people up. And after three weeks, they called and asked if I would be able to come up on a plane the next morning and take over as the first AD. Now, Paul, I have to tell you, there was no one Ever taking over a job as a first AD, more unqualified than I was at that point in my <laughs> in my work. I'd, uh, How much I, did I you understand the, pl- the
0: job and what it entailed at that point?
1: It it was an uh, an ever emerging picture. Uh, I knew the rudiments of it, which was you know you kind of um, help the director set the background, you communicate the director's wishes. But the, the the final picture of being an assistant director on a set is so much bigger than that and so much more um, fulfilling than that. And it's a people job. And that part I liked. I liked the technical stuff. I was interested in it. But what I could do was the people part. And so that helped me feel as though I had a place in what I was doing because I was sensitive to people.
0: And well, Peter Fonda was an interesting uh, place you'd learn because he would come from that very unusual, relaxed kind of a uh, left to center kind of attitude on the set. I'm guessing right? um, consider easy the with- to the
1: left. Yes. yes. So <laughs> i mean yeah i mean you know people were getting stoned regularly on the show especially in the evenings there were a couple of instances where i literally had to break into peter's room to to get him to come to the set because he was hungover, over and and he was very unhappy at the time for parts of it because he was in the midst of getting a divorce from his wife so it was a it was a fraught time for him but he was a sweetheart and that's the thing that a lot of people miss because he's got this kind of braggadocio going on with him, you know, and this kind of bigger than life um, Captain America image. But he was a very sensitive and gentle person.
0: And the talented uh, director as well. I, one of my favorite films of his is the, uh, the Hard Hand.
1: Very much so. And, you know, a lot of that, too, was um, made in the editing room. He had a very good DP around him, and he had a very good editor in Frank Mazzola. And the reason I say that is because I got to spend a year in the editing room with Frank Mazzola as he taught me editing one, one uh, time. I also loved editing. So, but um, yes, he he took this story written by a man named Tom Matheson from Washington State. He lived in Seattle, I think. And Tom was a very big... Um, Um, ecologically interested person at the time, which was, you know, early 1970s, a little ahead of his time. He'd written the script. Peter saw, I think what Tom saw and maybe was able to put a Hollywood um, rendering on it. But he hired kids off the street for the show. I think the only known actor in it was Keith Carradine in his very early years. And he, the boy, the boy for the star, he literally hired was a worker in the bike shop. He took his bicycle to to get fixed, so it had a wonderful quality of a Hollywood film with um, a, a student film's energy and 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 um, kind of uh, newness about it. And then um, it had a lot of very interesting people on it. Really
0: Would talented. You, so you said that's an amazing cinematographer to have on the shoot as well, who's obviously as strong a personality and a creative force as the director. So did that kind of help hold things in place for you? Because it was kind of a baptism of fire in every aspect. The type of people you're working with, and I don't mean that in a mean way, and the fact that you were going from PA to first A D in such a sudden way it, it it is amazing
1: when you're when you're really alert and have a lot of adrenaline going what you can learn on the fly you become i at least i did i became just you know, like a radar dish. Uh, everything that moved around me, everything that was going on, I I asked questions. I, I asked the dumb questions. I asked questions where people had no idea why I would even be asking something like that. But for me, it filled in a blank. Um, the people were very patient with me on that show. Um, there was a very experienced production manager named Anthony Mazzola who was killed later in that big plane crash that Paul that Paul Wolper crew had in Bishop, California, where the plane crashed into a mountain. He was on that plane, but he was on this show. He was a good teacher for me. Um, Bill Hayward, Peter's partner, um, Lillian Hayward, the agent's son, was also a teacher for me. Bruce Logan was the director of photography. He was, um, uh, who did he help on that? Um, oh, the guy the guy who did the effects for 2001, Doug Trumbull. He was nice. Doug Trumbull's cameraman for the effects on 2001 and had come over to America and was just beginning his very uh, creditable career.
0: Another director I forgot to mention that you worked with, <laughs> Doug,
1: <Yes>. Doug Trumbull. <laughs> Yes, another. Uh, um, you know, the thing that is missed in all this Hollywood stuff is these people and their sensitivities and their sweetness uh, in amongst all the other drama that goes on. And that's the thing that drew me to Peter, people like Peter and and Doug Trumbull. They were really nice people.
0: The striking thing for the book for me, uh, Bob Gale describes it quite. I think fantastically is is straightforwardly as an anecdotal memoir. And I think that gives a nice sense of it. It doesn't give every asset. It doesn't get into the heart and soul of it. It has a dreamlike quality. It has a, it's not a diary quality per se, because it's a bit more involved in, in the memories and the tales. And then we're looking for a a straightforward narrative of the beginning to end of every film was going to be disappointed. But, um, and that alone made it, it was a beautiful book. As I said, there was no, there was no meanness. It was about someone enjoying other people's company and enjoying the creative, the creative force of making a film and the magic of it, which, I, and that's what I was left with.
1: Well, um, it's, and it's not shmarmy or anything. These are, I mean, you know, all life is anecdotal to an extent after a while, right? I mean, it just is. But I double checked a lot of these anecdotes with people who were there at the time to make sure that I wasn't off on some fantasy. And for the most part, I, I wasn't, you know, these are, these are things that really happen and, and they're the way they happen. Some of the small details might be different for people who are looking at it from a different viewpoint, but you know, people like Paul Newman, I mean, over the course of a show, how he slowly turned my interest into car racing into a full-blown you should go and learn how to race a car because you could be good and the the path he put me on as he wove that into our relationship as we were doing a show those are things that you don't forget those are things that make a difference in your life and those are the kinds of things that i tried to write about because those are the things i wanted my kids to know
0: uh your second film i think was uh Bertie Gordon's Empire of the Ants.
1: Uh, no, that came that came further on. I the next picture, I, the next full picture I did was a movie called Haunts, right, wh- which um, had Cameron Mitchell on it, Aldo Ray, all these people who are in the last stages of their careers, as I was in the earlier stages of mine. So that that one took a, a while to come out. a Very odd movie, very independent, very cheap. Um, which taught me another aspect of filmmaking. You do have to learn how to do things on the cheap, um, even on big shows. Um, Then the next full show, after a lot of stuff where I wound up editing um, Albert Brooks's Saturday Night Live, uh, little sketches that he would film and then show on Saturday Night Live, uh, there was a whole thing of how I got into editing those and becoming friends with um, Albert Brooks, who was one of the most amazing personalities that have ever been around. But then the real break in things came when I was hired to be a location scout on King Kong, Dylan DeLaurentis' King Kong. That, that was where everything changed.
0: Do you think up until that point there was... possibility that you would have become an editor instead of an ad
1: no i I think uh, aesthetically and on my own i loved editing but i don't think that i could have earned a living then doing that the 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 roadmap for that was much more uh fraught with unknowns whereas i kept getting jobs doing in effect assistant directing. A lot of them were PA jobs, but you were still doing assistant directing to an extent. Um, On King Kong, I'd had enough days according to what the, um, the rules were for the Directors Guild where you could apply. I had more than enough days to apply to the DGA, but I hadn't thought of it because I was so overwhelmed at being hired on King Kong as a location scout. But the um, production manager on that show, a man named Jack Grossberg, who was responsible for a lot of things that happened for a lot of people, he mentored a lot of people, told me that I ought to, um, I ought to apply to the DGA, and see if I could get in because there were going to be multiple units on King Kong and perhaps I could get experience, DGA experience, on the film. I applied to the DGA, um, and and I don't talk about it. Well, I don't talk about it at all, but I had to sue the DGA ultimately to get in. They had basically a closed shop attitude. They knocked out a lot of my legitimate days in order to bring me below the threshold of what qualified me. I hired a lawyer, supposedly the only lawyer available to correctly petition the DGA where they had to hear my case. They... Had, I had three producers come to talk on my behalf. They put off the meeting after having us wait for two hours and rescheduled it in, a, in another attempt to kind of, I think, delay things. But I ultimately uh, won my case. Uh, there were people in the room who knew me a, a, as I went in, and it became much easier once I got in there and was able to speak to them rather than it being um, an anonymous person with anonymous paperwork. The Directors Guild hired my lawyer, and he went.
0: A scout on uh, King Kong, uh, one of my favorite not great films. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. John Gulliman was a director on that. That was was. an amazingly tough shoot in terms of uh, the logistics.
1: Terrifically hard. Um, and, And the thing I loved about King Kong was that it had a romantic quality that very few of the King Kongs have. And John Gillerman, beneath it all, was a huge romanticist. Um, He was a tough cookie. He yelled at me a lot when I finally, I I wound up taking over the show as the first AD, which is a whole drama in itself. And he was a fantastic teacher, but very difficult. I mean, he almost scared me out of the business because he was very tough.
0: Oh, and what made you hold on other than your own tenacity?
1: Even though it made me nervous, it didn't occur to me that that I would do something else. I found something that I could do. I liked it. I was pretty good at it, and I was getting better and I and he always you know buttressed me in ways that were subtle but but yelled at me in front of the crew, you know, so I get used to it.
0: Well, he was very old school, wasn't he um, there's a lovely anecdote in your book about uh, him flying the helicopter and would you like to tell us that because that's a beautiful anecdote (laughs) i'll tell
1: it quickly yes we um while i was still a location scout somebody suggested that we check the beaches out on the ocean side of catalina island um because i'd been unsuccessful looking for beaches on the west coast that they needed to land the the shore party from that go ashore on King Kong's Island. So um, Jack Grossberg said, set up a helicopter scout from Santa Monica Airport out to Catalina, and then we'll hook up ways for you to get out to the beach and check it out. I did all that. The day of the helicopter scout, I went out and checked that everything was ready. And this pilot, you know, this he was an older guy, you know, maybe in his fifth, uh, older to me at, at the time, uh, in his fifties. Now he'd be a young guy. Um, And he he was this blonde guy with aviator shades and kind of cool looking, you know, and he was waiting by the helicopter. The director came, the director of photography, one of the producers arrived in a van and they all uh, walked toward the van and the producer asked the pilot whether it would be okay for John Gilliman to sit in the co-pilot seat with him because uh, John was a pilot and was interested in helicopters. And the guy said, sure. So we take off, we're flying over the ocean. Uh, Gellerman asks if the pilot can take it down to about 50 feet over the water because he wants to have the helicopter undulate up and over the water to kind of see what that's like. And he's watching everything the pilot's doing. And so now as we're cruising along, they, we can hear them clearly in the front talking. Somehow the acoustics made it, so you could hear everything they were saying, even though it was very loud where we were in the back. This was my first helicopter ride. So my, I, I don't think I blinked the whole way out. Um, and Gilliman looked over at this guy at one point and said, you know, I was a pilot in the RAF during the war. And and he said, and, and so I, you know, I, I like flying. I, I, I get it, you know. And the pilot nodded at him and said, oh, mm-hmm, that's interesting. Yes. And then there was a moment of silence. And I was kind of grinning at it, you know. And then this guy says, yeah, he says... That's odd. He says, I was in the lava huh? And the rest of the flight was dead silent. <laughs> Everybody just looked straight ahead and our brains were freewheeling, I'm sure, you know. And and Gilliman and the pilot talked about it a little afterward, but that first 30 seconds after that little conversation was one of the more amazing experiences I've ever had.
0: That was a huge learning curve, I'm guessing, even though you were going to the for a long, long time to work on such a huge uh, set and to deal with such an older personality and a kind of militaristic, you know, we, we all say bully, but I know the type, you know, we, we know the type where they're shouting at you, I love you, <laughs> in their That's own right. way. <laughs> he,
1: he, he made a point of putting his assistant directors on the spot as a way of teaching them. And, and he was very good at it and uh, deft at it, you know, and it would come at the most scary moments that you can imagine, but, but he did it on purpose. And uh, there, and there was a, uh, there was a responsibility. He was trying to impart something to his assistants, me being one of them.
0: What was next after that, after Kong? That was Empire of the Ants. That was Empire of the Ants. Yeah. So yes, that was, was, was that more relaxing or tough for work in its own way? I mean, no. Gordon likes getting things done for nothing.
1: Well, not only that, but you know, I would—I was called by a, a, of an associate and an acquaintance who was the first AD on the film. They'd been shooting for two or three weeks. He asked me if I would be able to come down and take over the film because he wanted to be at home for Christmas with his family. It was very important to him. He had little kids. At the time, I was unmarried, and I'd just come off King Kong, and I was burnt to a crisp. We were on that film for a year. I, I was very tired m- mentally and psychically, just kind of exhausted. But I could hear in his voice, this was not somebody trying to skate out of a job. It was somebody who really wanted to be with his family. And I said, yes, I would do it. The reason it was an odd experience. I mean, I often say that King Kong, everything was downhill after King Kong because it had so many crazy things happen. And it was such um, a straight up shot of experience for me. But Empire of the Ants, I arrived in the middle of the night um, at the little town where people were staying in this motel. And never got to sleep because it was only three hours before they left to go out to the location. I hadn't read the script. I d- hadn't met the director. I only knew that it was an H. G. Wells film about giant mutated ants. And I get in the van with all these people who clamber in around me and they're half asleep and they've got their coffee and they look tired and and you know, nobody knew who I was, and nobody seemed to really care, you know, And that's how it started so, yeah, it was confusing. Had a lot to learn
0: on the fly. And how did you find uh, uh, Bert L. Gordon compared to John Gillerman? <laughs> well, you know,
1: I honestly don't remember a lot about Bert Gordon. I remember that he was pretty good about what he wanted. He was personable. He wasn't a yeller particularly, but he was tough. But, you know, directors have to be tough, don't they? You know, because not everyone can see what you see. Uh, And to get people to see what you see, you sometimes have to bring them up short in whatever way you find, you know, it works. So, uh, but Bert, um, you know, knew I was coming in a strange position, but again, I had another amazing production manager who buttressed me and was helpful. Um, But, you know, it it was um, a kind of a, Uh, confusing show, a lot of the effects weren't worked out and were going to be done post-production, so people had to run around in these tidal swamps um, with rangers just out of the frame with rifles in case alligators came up and stuff in the tidal waters where these people, the actors, are supposedly escaping from these giant ants. So trying to figure out how big the ants were, where they would be while they were acting, all that kind of stuff had to be kind of worked out on the fly depending on where we were in this tidal swamp <clears> that you know there were a lot of situations like that but you know joan collins was in that movie i mean come on i
0: was going to ask how did she take to running around the swamps <laughs> she was pretty good about it she was also uh, you know a very
1: you know a very hip person and very you know a lot of music playing all the time off her little ipod or whatever it was at the time you know sony walkman um Lots of very, you know, people were like, you know. Joan
0: Collins is the ultimate example of a trooper. The woman's career has hit this gets in so many ways, and she just keeps on. She's fantastic.
1: I I think you're right. And uh, she was doing that in this film. She was making uh, another push for stardom. So she wasn't screwing around. She was, she was serious about what she did. She didn't like a lot of the things that she had to do. They were hard physically, but she did them.
0: Um, and did, did you find dealing with actors easy from the very start? Did- well, yeah, depending on the people. I mean, every, every actor is
1: different, has a different approach, uh, has a different trigger point. You know, a lot of people don't realize, even film people who are experienced don't realize that because an actor is standing on the set not doing too much, that's not really a time to go up and talk to them. Because what the, most people don't realize is that those people are balancing two and a half pages of dialogue and what camera angle is going to work well for it. and And holding on to that characterization before they go on in front of the camera. And I was always... So I always had a very light touch with actors. Yes, I had to give them their call times. Yes, sometimes I had to talk to them about things that were not, you know, things that they had complaints about, which is, you know, part of what happens. You know, the AD is very visible. If something goes wrong on a set, usually people want to talk to the AD about it and get it fixed. Um, But in general, I didn't spend a lot of time trying to get to know actors only just way a, a, the best ways of shepherding them to where they needed to go to perform if that makes sense
0: and that's a huge skill you just talked about there knowing when to leave people alone and let them get on with their business
1: yeah i i agree with you about that i i I think that's one of the things that I'm almost unconsciously at first I just did because I'm I'm not a particularly outgoing person anyway, even though on a movie set you might not know that because when you have a, a crew that is depending on you or a director that's depending on you, it's it's amazingly empowering, and you you tend to be able to put down your personal um, shyness. And, and be able to speak on behalf of a crew. It's, it's kind of wonderful. Um, but I began to actually rely a lot of times on my intuition more than my intellect to tell you the truth. I followed gut feelings a lot, and they were right often enough that it kept me interested in, 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 in staying alert for those feelings. There were things that happened on set sometimes I mean, just as a very quick aside, because I just remembered the mental picture of it. We were riding in a van, scouting on Tootsie. I was sitting beside Owen Roisman. And Owen Roisman was sitting in a window seat. And they had the kind of windows that, that tilt open. And he had his hand out the window because it was hot. And we're riding down the road. And I just happened to look over. And I said, you know, Dick, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, have, your, Owen, you shouldn't have your hand out the window like that I mean those are million dollar hands you know you should have those insured at Lloyd's of London and he laughed and he pulled his hand in and literally five seconds later a messenger bicyclist came whipping off the side street and ran straight into the window and slammed it shut when he hit it and I you know Owen and I just looked at each other and just went what was that you know, yes, I trust my intuition. So you know, it's very interesting too, that a, a first AD and a, D and a DP can make a, a very strong uh, relationship to help a, a film. Um, I always always thought directors of photography were amazing. They had one trait that always was consistent and amazing to me. They were wired to say yes. And how how beneficial that is for a director to have a partner like that Um, where they can come up with the craziest idea and bounce it off their director of photography and he'll say, sure, let's give it a try. Uh, Yeah, let's do it. And you know, it frees then, it frees the director to be able to be you know to stay in touch with his show in ways that uh, a
0: more rigid setup would not allow him to do. And you, in a way, are the middleman between the production and the creative on the set. How hard was that role being in being for you at times? Hardly ever hard because uh, my attitude was the the money
1: and the budget is to spend on the movie. So I didn't really pay attention to that. Honestly. I mean, personally, I didn't say that, but I didn't let that run things. I let what was going on on the set run things. And um, I, I, I mean, that's why I never aspired to be a production manager. I would have spent all the money, you know, instantly. If a crew needed the money, you give them the money. What's the, what's the problem? Um, and Later in my career, um, people, new um, producers would come to me and go, okay, let's make a timetable for this afternoon on, on when we should be at this point in, in, in the schedule. And, uh, you know, I always turn to them, I said, you know, why do you want to do that? Is, is it something to make you feel better? Because movies don't work like that. They just don't. Sometimes you have to spend a time that you never saw coming on an expression you need from an actor, and it takes you five times as long as you thought it might be. And you're going to say that we're behind on our timetable, aren't you? And let's try it, just relax about it. And if we see a problem, I'll come and tell you. But let's not do timetables. And I was successful half the time. Half the time, they wanted a timetable. Because it made them feel better, but that's so silly.
0: The legendary story of um, Orson Welles shooting Touch of Evil, and he was something like uh, he was he was setting up his his famous tracking shot, and uh, he was behind schedule by two days or something, and they're all kind of going to get sacked. I think I think Charlton Heston stood up for him, and he said, "Well, I'm here because he's here." But after that shoot, that shot worked out that unknown factor, which is a highly unusual shot for the kind of film he was making as yep. much as anything else. He was two days ahead of schedule. <laughs> 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 something like that. You yeah. know, but- well,
1: or, or the other way, I've seen people, I've literally seen people say, okay, and they tear some pages out of the script. Now we're on schedule. How's that? And then people go, oh, no, but we need that scene.
0: Mm-hmm. That strange lateral fashion. Yes, you create something that's better than what was going to cost you all that money. I can. I I have an anecdote about that. If you, if I would love to hear that,
1: Um, Peter Weir on Witness, all the interiors because the Amish people that he was portraying in the film, uh, they didn't have electricity. They so their rooms were candlelit. So two things. One, which is on the topic we're talking about, which I'll talk about first. So we, John we was shooting at another uh, unbelievable person, an amazingly wonderful man. Um, and what is it about Australian filmmakers that makes them so good? I mean, the, Peter Weir and John Seale, both of them, were just consummate filmmakers. But... So we have to shoot a scene where Harrison Ford is recovering from being wounded and he's in a bedroom upstairs in this Amish house. And John Seals takes about two hours to light this thing with candles, real candles, but then you know bounce lighting to affect candle light. And he comes to me and he goes, we're set, we're good. Uh, so I call my second assistant to have the actors get ready to come in. And Peter comes upstairs and he looks around the room and he looks over at me. He says, could we talk in the hall for a second? And we go out in the hall. He goes, you know, I've been thinking, I don't really need this thing. Is there, is there anything else that we could shoot Um and I can see the actors out a window in the hallway coming up over the hill from the trailers and on their way into the set, and um, and was, so you know this is these are the kinds of things that happen every once in a while. He'd found a better way through it. He didn't need that scene. That gave him more time to give um, screen time to scenes that he did need. And but we had to quick find up. We found out something to do on the fly in the middle of when we thought we were just kind of a nice relaxed afternoon. The other thing he did when um, Peter found out in the prep that there was a Vermeer exhibit at a museum in Philadelphia. And he wanted John Seale to come in and see how Vermeer used his candlelit interiors in his paintings because he wanted that kind of tableau for his shots. And John Seale was all for it. We took in the electrical crew and the grip crew also because everybody was involved in that part of it. So I just have this wonderful memory of um, John Seal and Peter Weir standing shoulder to shoulder in front of this beautiful Vermeer painting, huge, beautiful painting. And, and behind him, a group of the grips and electricians in their leather coats and cut off jeans and, and chains, you know, key chains and, and, and then um, behind them, the the two security guards (laughs) from the from the museum with their arms folded watching you know and i was behind all of them because i used to stand back of everything so i could see everything but i just had this wonderful view of everybody taking in this painting you know that was then going to be applied for the movie it's a great great metal image
0: tell me this how did you find working with where obviously you enjoyed it but was there anything interesting in this creative process that you can remember? On the first day of shooting,
1: here's Peter Weir. He get, we were shooting in a, a farm field um, that was supposedly right outside a sheriff's office. So we were showing the workers in the field as separate shots, but then uh, a, a sheriff getting a phone call and out the window you would see the same bit of filming that we've done he gathered the whole crew in this field in the early morning just getting light and he had this little container of Japanese liqueur and he stood in the middle of everybody and he said "I, I, I would like us I'd like to bless this film and everybody working on it and salute you all as we start this together and he took a little sip and he passed it around to the whole crew. And he said okay let's go to work and that was the tone he set, which i've never seen anything like that before and neither did anybody else everybody's just kind of wow and that's how we began witness
0: that's a um, great way of making it special and sacred as such
1: and personal and and he would play music on the set to set a tone uh, and it would be beautiful music. It wouldn't be like hip stuff and, you know, stuff that you'd want to snap your fingers to. It was. He had a beautiful musical taste. I mean, I think you've seen it in all his films. But it was also a personal taste. And he would set tones. And we had a little boy working in the film, who was his first film. And I remember when he was being interviewed by the police, this little boy, Peter played a piece of music to set the tone for it as he was rehearsing. And it absolutely settled everybody and focused everybody into the tone he wanted for the scene. It was quite amazing. But he, uh, I have another um, story about him, which I almost didn't get the job on Witness because he asked me to read the script and then meet him at a hotel in Westwood where we would meet for the first time. And we were having coffee in this big open area, kind of a lounge. And he said, so. Um, you know, do you have any comments on the script? And I did have a couple of comments, they were very light, not a big deal, the script was very good, but it was, um, it had areas where it was unfinished, which wasn't what I talked about, but I'd noticed it. So I did, I had a couple of ideas. I don't remember what they were because as I said, they weren't that earth shattering, but suddenly the room went cold, Peter went cold. And I sensed it right away. I was like, uh-oh. And I didn't understand what it was that had shut him down a little bit, but the rest of the of the meeting was a, a kind of cold. Uh, that's the only way I know how to explain it. And I left and I felt a little unsettled. And I got a call, I think two days later from uh, the producer saying, Peter would like to talk to you. And Peter said, hey, hi. Um, I wanted to ask you a question. He said, You know, I've never had an AD comment on a script of mine. It's just not done. And I said, Oh, well, I'm, you know, I apologize if I offended you or if I said something I shouldn't have, but you had asked me what I thought. And I thought that's what you wanted to hear. I did have a couple of thoughts. And he, Oh, right right well would you like to do the show with me and he 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 understood then, you know but at first he was so used to his ads being absolutely almost militarily hierarchy you know you know doing and and that wasn't the relationship we wound up having at all it was extremely personable he he was really a sweet person and troubled uh, in a lot of ways because trying to make the story work is a tough story to make work for him but um he was wonderful uh, and uh, and i don't think anybody I, I can think of could have made master and commander could
0: they i just no. don't think so yeah which i think is a highly underrated film yeah yeah interesting you say it sounds like you were doing a lot of creative work within your role as an operator and making sure things happen. There was still a good, you still have a good sense of the creativity required to make the film. And as the personality of the director, is that something that you feel you need to have in the back of your mind?
1: Well, I think what you need to have in the back of your mind is that every director is different and has a different way of approaching their work and a different way of approaching their relationships. And you have to read that before you start imposing yourself on it. I mean, that's the way I always looked at it. Every director I worked with, I had to learn them is what I told myself. And um, because really the, the range of personalities like everywhere, you know, is wide. I mean, Sidney Pollack was a certain kind of director who wanted a certain kind of assistant director who would give him a certain kind of of feedback. And, and then you'd have Zemeckis, who was a different way of working. Tim Burton, very different. Milos Forman. I mean, <laughs> you talk about a world-class man. Milos Forman, to learn Milos Forman. I mean, I actually wrote a chapter about it. Because yeah. he was so deceptively simplistic in his approach to things. And it was, it was masking an extremely detailed, disciplined, and focused um, place that he was coming from. I mean he would come in in the mornings. So I, I wrote about this when I first started working with him. He would come in in the morning to give the initial setup, you know where we put the camera, what would happen in the scene and a lot of directors get very detailed about it because they want to make sure everybody understands. Muish would come in and go, well, they're going to come in from here and they'll, uh, we'll put the camera there and you know they would play the scene up and and you know the, it'll be good. So I'll be in my trailer you it was Philippe Rousselot filming at the time. He said you and Philippe call me when you're ready and I will come out. And when I first started you know that that lack of specificity totally threw me because I didn't know I didn't know where the hell the actors are coming from really I mean that direction is is has a bunch of degrees in it you know. And where were they going to do it? And where was the coverage going to be? And was there, I mean, I didn't really think linearly like that, but in effect, that's what he left me wondering about. And I went to the producer on it, whose name is Michael Hausman, who'd been Mulish's AD for years, a very outspoken take charge, bigger than life personality, I am not. Um, and I went to Michael the next morning, I said, Mulish is saying, you know, they will come out here and they'll do this and they'll do that. And I, you know, he doesn't even say where to really put the camera and I'm just, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do him an injustice and not, he said, you know, David, quit farting around, just do what he says the best you can and let him come out and fix it in the rehearsal. Come on, just go do your work. And that's And that's how he told me to, to handle it. And when I did, I began to understand that Miloš, indeed fix most everything in the rehearsals, or it, he'd suddenly have a change in the middle of something that would adjust to something that he really wanted that he wasn't letting on for the moment that he wanted. He was a very uh, facile filmmaker, but he made it look like it, he was, it made it look so easy and, and we know it's not. I think his early uh, uh, Czech filmmaking experiences made him be able to use um, locations even if they weren't perfect because if he got the people right the location became secondary in a sense and he always concentrated on getting the performances in ways that I I still marvel at because he made it look so easy he really did and uh, And he worked with some very complex actors as well The, the first film I worked on, he had Ed Norton, Courtney Love, and uh, I'm going to forget his name, uh, Woody Harrelson. Woody, yeah. It, in the same film, many times in the same scenes. And each one of those people had their own very specific ideas of how they thought their characters should be and how they should interact. And had to had to m- meld all that make it, you know, so that he could allow them to do what they wanted to do and still keep the tone of the script that he wanted to have. And that's an art form in itself.
0: What did he do, do you think? Do you feel that you observe from what your observation? Little adjustments
1: mid-scene. He'd take it step at a time to where he wanted it. He wouldn't try to get the whole thing done at once. It didn't take longer to do it that way, but it would take a few takes. And he would allow them to to do what they needed to do in the scene, and then he would start shaping it, or he'd do it in the rehearsal the same way. He'd shape things as he went, and a lot of times, you know, they'd get it pretty close to the money. It wasn't like every scene had to be done that done that way. But if he had something he really wanted and he wasn't getting it, that's what I noticed he would do. He would take it there by stages
0: so that it wasn't too uncomfortable. Didn't you? You walked a man on the moon, didn't you? Yeah. Well, Jim Carrey was the the ultimate out-there performance.
1: (laughs) I have never seen anything like it, and I don't think I ever will.
0: Uh, Did you watch the documentary?
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. That was about um, a fifth of what went on on those sets. Wow. That documentary. That that show, I have never been on anything like it in my life. I mean, I'm not kidding you. And neither had anybody else who was on that film. Um, We still talk about it. When we meet, when I meet up people who are on the the movie who were on that on the moon, we still go, "What the hell was that?"
0: Andy Kaufman would have been proud. I'd say he was smiling he have, from heaven. He on have, right,
1: he took over that man's personality. He took it over to such an extent that Andy Kaufman's parents came to the set to visit Jim and broke into tears when they talked with him. I mean, I, this guy. I think it changed him completely also. I think it changed Jim Carrey as a being going through that experience. He was never the same after that to me. I'm not sure if I'm right about that, but he he, well, I, I actually wrote about that a little bit too. I mean, he literally went away in the first days of the prep when we had to call him Andy and he came back at the rap party. And that's really the way I think of it, that man disappeared into that part. And his assistant, who I was good friends with, she was the liaison between the film company and Jim. And she said, even, even off camera, even away from the production, he was Andy, the whole show. She had to deal with Andy Kaufman as well as Jim Carrey behind Andy Kaufman. It was very difficult. And I still don't know how Mueller's did that.
0: But, yeah. Because he was directing Andy Kaufman, as opposed to Jim Carrey, and we all know what Andy Kaufman was like when he was on Taxi. You know,
1: during the the wrestling match that he had with Jerry Lawler, we filmed it in a big in in, a, in a, the Olympic Auditorium, I think it was downtown Los Angeles, it's a pretty big venue, and we had the uh, 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 the wrestling mats elevated to an extent, and there's a big audience, a lot of background people. Thank. God, we didn't have the amount of cell phones that we do now. And we made everybody check their phones and stuff because we did and some people didn't. But I was up, you know, where we were staging the stuff and Milos was back in by the video monitors, which uh, is a a very hard place for a lot of directors to be. They shouldn't be there. They should be up by the cameras, but that's a whole other discussion. And that's a personal opinion. but Milosh, at this point, had to be back by the monitors. He couldn't be up by the cameras. He had to have the, the enough of the angles going. But I saw something cross Jim's face when we were about to do a scene, and I knew he was going to do something to Jerry Lawler. that was going to flip Jerry Lawler out, and I was afraid of violence. I was afraid Jerry, and I started, I started signaling to Michael Hoffman. I mean, to Michael Hausman from from the back of the out of the shot. You know, get Milosh, get him to stop. Don't have him roll the cameras. And they, he rolled. He called to roll the cameras. We rolled the cameras, and Jim Carrey spit on Jerry Lawler in the middle of the scene. And Jerry Lawler went nuts. I mean, he went after him in a way that you could never ask, uh, you know, a guy to act doing. I mean, he just snapped, and it got very dangerous and and very out of control. And you know. I never saw anybody do something to that extent to take things that far
0: where where it was further than far usually denotes, you know. You've worked with Dustin Hoffman, who'd be deep in his performance as well. But yeah. he, he seemed yeah. to have been able to break out of things.
1: You know, there are some actors who can who can put on the part as they're walking out to take their marks. Right. They just they put it on like a, like we put on a shirt. And they do it and then they take the shirt off when you call cut. Um Dustin did a blend of that. You know, he, he would be in character a lot, especially when you're doing Tootsie. I mean, you know, and also Rain Man. I mean, what mean I mean, just those two parts alone to show you a range that a lot of people can't even fathom, much less you know, carry off. So, I mean, I told Dustin at the the beginning of rehearsals for Rayman that I was so glad he wasn't playing an ax murderer. And he thought that was funny. Um, But he, he went and, and, and essentially lived with some people who had the kind of um, mental um, illness that he had, that he was portraying, but he didn't feel as though he'd gotten the characterization correct until we were about, Halfway through the movie. Oh. And so we literally at the end of shooting, we went back and reshot several key scenes in Cincinnati, one of them being where they have breakfast and he dropped they drop the toothpicks and he can he sees how many toothpicks there are. We we went and reshot that scene again because he felt as though he had the character m- more in hand. We did several other ones. Um, but he he, he he was honing the character all the way through the film. And there were times when he come out of a take and he said, I, I missed it. I missed it. And we'd go back and do another take. And in fact, that's another story I don't tell very often. But now it's been long enough where I don't think it matters. But at one point, the camera people came to me in the first two weeks of Rain Man. We were shooting in Cincinnati at the clinic where he was, where Dustin was housed. And... They said, we have a problem. And I was, I was really surprised because for the camera crew to come out of the camera group and actually say that they have a problem to someone else is a big deal in itself. But they said, you, you know, Dustin is doing a lot of things spontaneously and we're having a hard time keeping them in focus. We have marks and everything. We're really close a lot of times, but, there, but Barry is printing shots that are out of focus. And they're and when they show up on a big screen, you'll see it. And he says they're in focus. He says, it's fine. I can see it in the monitor. It's fine. We're moving on. And he said, you know, we're trying to make, we're trying to make a good film too. We really want to make it right. And we're 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 printing shots we shouldn't print. Can you help? And I said, give me a minute. And he just came to me and I went to Dustin and I said, Dustin, I have, a, can I talk to you? Sure here's, here's what's happening. We, and can you help me fix it? And I told them what they told me. And I said, so what if, if they give me a signal, if they work out a signal to me that they have a problem, if I can give you a signal, will you go and ask Barry Levinson for another take? Because he'll never say no to you. And he said, Absolutely. And he grabbed me by the shirt and he said, we have to go to Tom right now. And he yanked me out and we ran to Tom's trailer. He kicked everybody out of Tom's trailer, you know, his wife and all of the people that are around him a lot, all gone. And he sat down with Tom and Tom's like, absolutely, absolutely. And that's how we took care of that problem. In all honesty, I think I only used it about five or six times, but they were critical. And that's, how, that's another way that You know, you don't talk about how you work to get things done because that's not what you want to talk about. But there's, you know, there's so much of that that goes on in filmmaking that's never spoken about, that's used all the time. There are all kinds of ways of getting things done that are not by the book. They're not by film school. They're even a lot of times experientially, you never come up to them until suddenly there it is, you know. But it's all a part of filmmaking, and a lot of it is um, some pretty amazing things.
0: Have you ever had difficulty with the relationship between, say, camera person and director, where they weren't getting along?
1: Um, I can't remember specifically. I'm sure I have. Um, but I mean, you, you just try to you just try to keep it going and keep it and keep it so it doesn't you know get too out of shape. But you're dealing with strong people, strong personalities, and they they get you know they get pissed off at each other. They're, that's a part of it too. There are very strong personalities uh, who have uh, strong feelings about what they need to do and how it needs to be done, and sometimes they don't mesh. That that's, I think it happens almost on every film. There is a there is a moment or a few moments where things are are hard between in, in the communication, but. You know, part of it is you have to work it out because meanwhile, there's a movie. So, you know, usually you can. I mean, my way of, of um, if, if people weren't getting along, you couldn't do it with a director and a, a, and a director of photography. But if there were, if you have a factionalization on a film crew, you're dead. So what I would try to do is get the people who were involved in the difference of opinion in a room away from everything, close the door and and go, okay, you're saying this, you're saying that, we have to work it out, come on, talk about it. And a lot of times that was pretty effective. You couldn't always do it that way all the time, but I mean, conflict resolution is a huge part of any film at all levels.
0: Well you are trying to appeal to a basic professionalism that you expect of these people who are being paid to do a job.
1: Well also you find out that what one person had in mind was not what the other person thought they had in mind and once they hear what that person had in mind they can then they actually have a common ground. I mean, look, that works in marriages too. You know, when you find out that your wife has a, an entirely different picture than what you thought she was describing once you hear it then you you can work it out and um it worked that way on film sets too
0: of all the films you've worked on david what would you say was the greatest challenge when you, you were up and running as a first AD?
1: making it go seeing people work together well having fun doing what they're doing because there's a it's a lot of fun when things are working um, and I think the best experiences of that were the three Back to the Future films because the heart of that crew had worked with Bob Zemeckis on Romancing the Stone, Dean Cundey, you know, Clyde Bryant, Ray Stella, all these, those are the camera crew. Um, but I mean, the, the sound mixtures were there. A lot of the, the key grip was there. So they had their shorthand worked out on a very rough film, I understood, um then I had to find out how I could fit into that group. Um, but once we got that all working, and then, of course, once Michael Fox came on board, that was the biggest change in the Back to the Future. That's what made Back to the Future go and become what it was. Without Michael Fox, I don't think, honestly, that Back to the Future would have been what, what Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis had in mind.
0: It's one of um, the most amazing pieces of turnaround
1: casting ever. Absolutely a, a godsend. Um, or Eric Stoltz. Yeah, but, you know, he, he's a really good actor. He'd really done a good job in Mask. Universal was 100% behind him. They wanted him from the get-go, and he was utterly wrong for the part, and they didn't, they couldn't see beyond their hopes for him that it wasn't what Bob needed until Bob cut together something like, parts of the first four or five weeks of filming and showed it to Steven who went, oops, and then they took it to Sid Sheinberg and showed Sid and, and Sid saw what the problem was. They had to show him, they couldn't, they couldn't see it. Um, but when that crew was rolling, when we were in that groove that we hit all the time on those three films, it was sensational filmmaking.
0: On all levels. It was just sensational. It's a, it's a wonderful trilogy. Um, that wasn't supposed to be a trilogy. No, not at all. And it wasn't. The the
1: second part, I mean, we, we literally shut down in the prep for Back to the Future 2 because Bob realized that they couldn't do the film that they had in mind in one film. And he went to Universal and said, I have to have two films. And they literally shut us down while they worked it out. Wow, yeah, it was a pretty big deal. And we, none of us knew it at the time. Um, we didn't know why we'd been shut down, and we went off. Bob took us off and did the, the second episode of Tales from the Crypt while we were while he was working that out. He did that on the side, um, and and you know to keep us all together and working. You know, I'm I'm happy I got out when I did. Um, the reason I got out, I, you read in that article that I sent you. But when I talk to people now who are doing what I do and even other people, camera people, grips, electricians, I'm still friends with some of them, it's not the same at all. Um, It's become corporate and it's become business driven whereas yes, it is the movie business, but movie came before business. In a lot of instances when I was doing films, People understood that, yes, there were going to be mistakes that happened, but to make the movie right, you had to then uh, put more money into doing and writing the mistakes. And that was a part of the process. It wasn't that you you fired people right away. Um, And also you paid people well. Um, They don't pay people well. They've been knocking down salaries for decades. Um, And it's become a, a much more... Uh, um, I mean, there used to be a real sense of pride on a movie set, and it wasn't that overt particularly, but it was just this sense that you were working toward a shared goal with a group of people who had the same um, impetus and and hopes that you did. Um, and I know that sounds a little idealistic, and perhaps it is, and maybe I think my naivete and my idealism w- helped in great measure uh, a lot of times, for what i did because you know it's it can be pretty stark um and that applies to the times when i was working too but you know now i mean i'm still in you know i still get involved in these discussions with people have you ever seen that group crew stories on facebook no you should look at it sometime it's It's pretty interesting it has a lot of younger people involved in films and the kinds of things that they choose to talk about and, and mostly complain about, it's a lot different than what you and I know. Um, And they're, and they're the current
0: people working in film. It's, it's a, it's a rough go. Is there a chance it could come around again or will it always be affected by those things? I I really don't
1: know where it's going. Um, uh, I mean, I I don't even try to figure that part out, but for instance, There's some really good stuff being made now too. I'm watching a four season series about the, about Palestinian and Israeli uh, intelligence people. I I think it's called Fauda, F-A-U-D-A, which is an Israeli word for chaos. And it's, it's really scary and, and really political and really edgy and really well done and teachable. And they, they, they film it in both um, Arabic and, uh, um, uh, you know, Israeli, uh, and, and, and it's, it's utterly riveting. Uh, you know, you don't see things like that being made in the, in the 70s and 80s too much. So but you know I've had I've seen enough Marvel movies I've seen enough effects driven movies they're they're just they take the life out of it don't they they take the life out of films
0: unless they're done right story has been taught now to the point where Everyone's into this notion of formula of what makes it makes a film work. You know the three acts, and all. It, it's destroyed the heart of the creativity. It, so much so that it's
1: built an expectation into an audience that you know if it doesn't now perform like that, and in, in almost an expectation, it throws it it throws audiences for a loop too. It's an odd it's an odd situation we're in, but I really think that that you know. I would, I would rather see a good story than,
0: you know, than something effects driven. I would rather see something believable. You achieved one of the most amazing things in terms of setting up a shot before CGI, and that is you emptied Times Square. Yep. Uh, tell me about the logistics. The, the, the film is uh, Vanilla Sky.
1: Yeah, as a physical achievement, I think that that was large. I mean, it, 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 when we first broached that to the New York Film Commission and the mayor's office, they just went blank. They did. They, they said, uh, we, you know, we, I don't think we can do that. Um, they'd had portions of it closed before. They'd never closed down Times Square. So, I mean, when I read it, and, and I wrote about this too, when I read it, I thought, wow, that is going to be a really cool special effects scene. Tom drives into a deserted Times Square. That is going to be really interesting to do. And I started trying to think about how you do it. And then they told me, no, that's, phys- that's going to actually happen. And the, from the very beginning of that film, the first thing I heard about when we talked about Times Square was, no, we were going to do it for real. So we had a chance to think about it a lot. We put a specific production manager in charge of getting permits from all the businesses in Times Square to to close them for the period of time that the New York Film Commission and the mayor's office might give us to do. It took them, I can't remember how long, it took them a while to actually come around with a plan that they thought as a city that they could do, which meant, you know, we had to involve ourselves with (coughs) You know the bus, the bus schedules, the subway schedules, the traffic, the pedestrians, and the businesses. So that took all a long time to set up. Um, we had almost a hundred PA's hired for that morning. These are kids. It was the kids that gave us this shot. Literally, yes, we had the police that blocked off certain things and we halted certain bus routes and everything. But it was these hundred kids that walked out at four and five in the morning in the fog and the darkness and the cold and set up coffee tables for people who had to be held out of the shot and were in position to be able to talk to people about the shot, but actually hold them out of Times Square. So I I always make that a key description of what went on because a lot of people miss it. They think the movie came in, movie company came in and and got all these people to do it. No, it was kids. So then we went and rehearsed in a parking lot. We, we, met, we took a parking lot in Brooklyn and measured out where the car had to come from, how far, what the crane move would be and where Tom would go after he got out of the car. And we had to rehearse that because it was a steady cam that brought the car in and then he sat on a crane arm and the crane arm lifted him up to give him the wide shot that we needed. So when we'd done that, the, and the New York Film Commission gave us permission for I think f- four, four hours on a Sunday morning That was generous. Yeah, and it was either three or four, but I think it was four because we had coverage, uh, obviously. Um, But nothing was allowed in Times Square before somebody said, okay, go. And everything, they would open up everything at the appointed out time for us. We had to be completely gone. So it wasn't really four hours. But, uh, you know, I remember the morning of it, um, we had all these PAs in position and my second assistant and my second second also need a lot of credit on that because they did a whole hell of a lot of work that's never talked about. And, and Tom's waiting in a suburban a couple of blocks away and all the trucks are waiting. They're idling on side streets. And when the guy gave us the high sign, it was just all this stuff appeared. It was unbelievable and people running in. And yeah, we, I mean, we carried it off. We were done uh, ahead of time, a few minutes ahead of time. We were completely gone when they opened Times Square up again. It took like literally five to ten minutes before you would never know anything had happened. I mean, it just flooded with cars, buses, people, and you'd never know. You know, it's just amazing. We we uh, Tom, you know, had to do a lot of running. He never complained. Never. I mean, Tom does run. Right. I mean, but, you know, I never knew that would become a hallmark of, of, far, <laughs> of, of many of his films, but, you know, he is good at it. And and he he went for it. I mean, he ran a, a huge long way. That first shot, I couldn't believe that he was a dot. We're like, wait, you know, stop, a come back. A few days before that, we shut down also Central Park West from about... 48th Street to Columbus Circle. We shut off the subways, we shut off the buses, the traffic, the people, because we had to have that shot, too. And John Toll didn't like the dailies from that. And we had to go out and do it again. I was at the dailies. I was like, I don't see anything wrong with that film. <laughs> I didn't say it. I was like, Okay. We um, were terrified well, to go out and do it again. Really, that was that was even harder than Times Is
0: Isn't that what they say? It's the, the first time, at least, it's the unknown. But you've already done it, then you go back in, and you're not. Yeah, now, you're now just... you know
1: what's coming. Yeah, <laughs> I always liked it. I didn't know what was coming on big shows and big shots, you know, because then you could it just happened. But if you had to go back and do something again,
0: that's really bad. You became good friends with Paul Newman, and you worked with him as an actor and director. Mm-hmm. Um, t- mm-hmm. t- tell me about your experience with Paul. I- I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Well, first of all, I mean, he was a very unique and special man, and he didn't radiate that wherever he went. But I mean, if you were around him, you found out real quick. He, um, I, I mean, on absence of malice, I-, I, you know, I he was, you know, he made popcorn for everybody. The thing he did on every show that he ever did, he made popcorn for the crew. He talked to the crew. He's very personable, and he enjoyed the crew. He was a, a working class actor in that way, but he was also super smart, super well-read, politically active. Um, his, I think he'd just begun his charity or it was in the early stages, maybe not quite on Absinthe Mellis. And he would joke around, he was kind of funny, but he was very private too. All, all those things wrapped into one. I didn't know that he'd been watching the way I worked. He never alluded to it at all. We'd chat every once in a while. Um, but I didn't try to become buddies with him or anything. It just wasn't the way I worked, even then. And that was fairly early in my career. But he called me at my house a couple of years later at my apartment. Please believe me. It was a tiny little apartment in Westwood. And I thought somebody was screwing with me. And it really sounded like Newman. He was asking me to do a show. And I was like, Come on, and then I realized it was him, and I asked him how he got my number, and he said I got it off the crew list from Absence of Malice, and um, I just said yes, you know, I said yes, whatever it is, yes. He said, well, I want you to come over to the house where Joanne and I are in Beverly Hills. We're talking with Henry Bumstead, the production uh, the production designer will be there, and some other people, and just come over, and, and why don't you just see what you think? And I said sure, but yes, you know, <laughs> I'll come over, but. I want to do a movie. And I had a wonderful time on, on that film because he had friends working with him. He had people that he trusted and, and who knew how to be around him. They gave him the privacy needed, but they gave him the advice he needed too. And um, I worked on learning him, you know, the way I would do with every director. And he did have his ways. And they were very smart. Um, he knew it was a tight budget and he worked as though he were on a tight budget show. He wasn't going to try and make it the the best, biggest film that had ever been made. He was obviously really good with the actors. When he found out I had an interest in car racing, for, for some reason, and I didn't understand it at the time, and s- sometimes I'm still not actually sure that it actually happened that way, but I think he kind of took it on himself to goad that side of me (laughs) about car racing because, and I write about this kind of extensively in the book because on this film, through the course of the film, by the end of the film, I came home, got over, you know, rested up after being on the film and went to two driving schools. That's what Paul Newman did for me, aside from being a cool director. He, um, but there was another side of him i had something that i I was having trouble with a friend of his who was the stunt coordinator and i wanted to talk to paul about the problem i was having and would he help me solve it and i i've never told anybody this um except you know close friends but it's 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 worthy of him and i went into his trailer and there was nobody there and i said can i talk to you about something i have a little problem i said sure and i described what i felt was the problem going on with this person and what was going on on the set because of it and he he just looked at me and he nodded and he didn't say anything and i so i went on a little more and i said so what do you think and he said so when do you think the next shock's going to be ready and i said well we're pretty close he said good well call me when you're ready and he wouldn't address it at all wow Just completely washed it out. Wouldn't address it. Wouldn't allude to it, as though I'd never said it. And we went on from there. And I learned something about him there too. So wasn't isn't that interesting? You know, I don't even know what it was, but he just would not deal with that. Interesting. Yeah. Very human. (laughs) Very. And but you know if you got him talking about cars, he changed into a kid, and this kid came out, and he was just man, you wouldn't believe how cool that was. When I, you know, it was just like completely drop everything, all the barriers and the masks and just wow,
0: it was so fun.
1: Didn't yeah, you, I loved them.
0: Did you work on uh, Twilight? Wasn't it? Yeah, with with Robert Benton as well, and a filmmaker I uh, very much like, sweet man. Too. But that was a, a wonderful um, oh. gathering of talent. <laughs> but Susan Sarandon, Reese Witherspoon, James Garner, uh,
1: Gene Hackman, and Paul. Isn't that right? That's right. yeah. Holy crap! You know, I mean, we. You know, the first time that that whole group came in, we just nobody knew what to do. You know, it's just like we just hit heaven. You know, boom, and Gene Hackman. As another person, I, I got along with Gene Hackman, and Gene Hackman was a little scary. Um, he could be; he had definite things that were, would not work for him, and he was not shy about letting you know. But I never really saw that part of him, except for once with Sidney Pollock. He didn't like something that Sidney wanted him to do in a scene, and he put his dug his heels in, and we had to go take a coffee break. You, you know, but um, they they were wonderful together. And yes, the movie was. You know, maybe not all it could have been. It's
0: a slow-burn film. It stays with you after you after afterwards. And I think the noir. I think part of the reason it's not that big a success was that noir was kind of falling off around that time.
1: It could be. I I don't know. Honestly, you know, I never know what makes an audience goes to a film. Really, you know, you never know when you're making a film, do you? Whether it's going to catch or not. Um, I mean, I think there were aspects of that film that were wonderful you know but you, you you know you had to enjoy as you say the the story and the, the the milieu if you will you know yeah um james garner was i mean he'd sit around and you know he and paul would talk about you know car racing and stuff um, but they're both
0: enthusiasts weren't they oh yeah uh, i think garner know.
1: still was garner was you know he did Grand Prix, right? And right, um,
0: with John Frankenheimer.
1: Yep. I mean, he's out there in the cars with all these world-class Formula One drivers around him. You know, driving around in these on the old Nurburgring and the and the uh, the old Spa course, which went off into the countryside. It's not like it, the way it is now, you know. And uh, yeah, they had great tales. You know,
0: you yourself was an enthusiast. You always had plenty to say to them.
1: Well, you know, I I didn't uh, I didn't insert myself in that too much. I listened. Um, I talked with Garner off to the side, or I talked with Paul off to the side. But if they were talking about it, we just you know we just wanted to hear what they had to say, you know. Um, I race. I decided to race one season in cars. Uh, it was the year I did Rain Man and the year I met my wife. So it was a pretty good year. And and uh, you know, so what I didn't realize. Was it was a a southwest region of the Sports Car Club of America, the national championship for that region. It had twelve races or something. Eight of them happened while I was filming Rain Man. So that if we were filming in Cincinnati, we were filming six days a week. I'd get on a plane on Saturday night, fly to Los Angeles, get into a car, drive out to Riverside Raceway, go to sleep, get up in the morning. Practice, qualify, race the car, go back to LAX, and fly to Cincinnati on the red eye, and have there be a car that would take me straight to the set on Monday morning. I did that a few times, um, but I won the championship, which is so odd. And and um, yeah, uh, Rayman, my wife, and a and a. Car championship—the only one I ever tried for. I didn't drive after I met my wife, you know, because we had other things we were doing, like a family. So, yeah,
0: that's amazing. That's <laughs> that's some some energy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wish I wish I had it now. It'd be nice. I'd I say you've more I...
0: energy than you let on, David.
1: Yeah,
0: um, but tell me this: the book has been out now a few months. Uh, what's been the response? This has been good. I
1: it's been an unqualified, amazing response from people. I mean, I don't think people would take the time to write you if they didn't like it, you know? And, I, and I'm hopeful that the people that I know, my friends, would not bullshit me. But it's been nice. It really has. It's been... I uh, unex- First of all, the, the layout of the book is different. Uh, you know, that's why I, w- one of the reasons one of the publishers wanted to turn it down because I didn't make it into these big chapters with a bunch of things. I just, every story is a story in itself and doesn't rely on anything before or after it. They're completely separate. And um, so that was unusual, I gather, for a book. It was written for people who did like it, who get it, you know. And if that, if people who work in film, and I put this thing, I put a couple of chapters of it on crew stories, and the response was unbelievable. I mean, I was just, knocked out people got it people loved it you know they did and so i feel as though uh, i've been able to um show a side of filmmaking that a lot of times is not talked about which is it's all people like you and me doing the best we can with what we have in the midst of a lot of other people hopefully doing the same thing I, I learned so much from being on a film set from so many smart people. You know, you can't be dumb and be in a film crew. You can't. You have to know what you're doing. You have to know how to get along with people. You have to get what you need done, done. And so I, I feel as though I've, if I've been able to impart some of what happened in the midst of my work, it will allow people to see that there are other things going on on films besides your name uh, above the title and like a bunch of money and a bunch of fame. There are also just wonderful ways of living your life.
0: You said you wrote the book as for your children. What did they think of it?
1: Well, the, you know, I, I, my daughter has sat down and read it. I don't think my son has. I don't expect them to until after I'm gone, sort of, you know. Because I mean, Dad's right there. You've heard all the stories a million times, you know. Come on. So, you know, they're now 28 and 24. So that's not; those are not the people I wrote. I started writing the book. For. <laughs> But you know, in a, in a sense, I feel good about that because aren't all film people, in one sense, your kids? You know, when you have some experience that you want to impart to them, so I sort of feel as though, um, you know, if any of this makes sense to people who are interested in film, it will help them just relax into it a little bit and see that it's it. Yes, it's this it's this beacon that has a tremendous pull for a lot of people, but underneath that is the the heart of it is people, you know, just people.